Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mom listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's senior media reporter, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And reporter, Brittany Rigby. Hello. Plus, coming up later, Hannah speaks with James Leggett, MNC Saatchi CEO, on what Australia gets right in the creative space. One thing that we are very good at is producing amazing work. I think Australia punches well above its weight creatively. The fallout from the Tourism Australia philosophy campaign. People are making comments on work that they haven't seen. Um, They're making comments on a line out of context. And why now is a better time than ever to be in creative? I believe that CEOs in Australia need us more now than they've ever needed us. And I believe this has never been a more exciting time to be working in, in our industry. But first, the week's topics. Disney Plus is finally here. IGA, Stocklands and Officeworks release their Christmas campaigns. Val Morgan reveals its new publishing platform. And Rolling Stone Australia is back. First up, this week finally saw the launch of Disney Plus, shortly after the US launch, which saw 10 million subscribers sign up in the first 24 hours, crushing the system and resulting in wait times of up to 90 minutes to load content. Hannah, we've been talking about Disney Plus's imminent arrival for quite some time, and now it's finally here. What does it actually bring to the table for Australian streaming audiences? So the thing to remember with Disney is it isn't just Disney. It's Disney, Marvel, and Fox. Um, So obviously Disney, you're looking at all the classic movies. You're looking at a whole host of kids' content across TV shows and all that kind of stuff. Also, Disney up until now has used the Vault system where it hasn't released its DVDs every year. It kind of releases one for a little while and then drops them back into the Vault. So Disney content has actually been pretty hard to access before now. But on top of that, you've got all the Marvel content, that's all the new movies, and you've also got Fox, which Fox includes one of the biggest ones coming is The Simpsons, which has never been available to stream in Australia before. So I think what people kind of maybe associating as Disney is it's actually a much bigger ecosystem than that. So it's not just those traditional animated films like The Lion King and Mulan and Beauty and the Beast. It's also the likes of, you know, children's programs like Hannah Montana and Lizzie McGuire and then the Star Wars movies. um, And then on top of that. The Simpsons, Modern Family, all that kind of stuff as well. And on top of that, it's new content as well. So obviously one of the biggest launch titles was the Star Wars series The Mandalorian, which – you can only watch via Disney Plus. And with this new content, this is going to be content that you can't access unless you've got access to Disney Plus. So plus they're doing a whole host of their own original movies. There's a Lady and the Tramp remake coming. So yeah, there's a lot falling under the umbrella. So quick snap poll. What streaming services do you actually pay for, Hannah? (laughs) Oh, on the spot. I pay for all of them. I've got them all. Except, well, by that I mean... You don't have them all, though. You don't pay for KO. I bet you don't have Hey You. Of course I don't have bloody KO. What what sport do I watch? I was about to clarify. You said I have them all. I have them all as in the main... I'd like you to retract that statement. And we'll we'll go again, (laughs) Hannah, so that we don't lie to our audience. (laughs) Hannah, which streaming platforms do you pay for? I have all 
the main streaming platforms, Vivian, which means I have Stan, I have Netflix, I have Disney Plus now, I have um, Amazon Prime. So across the board, I mean, do I watch them all? No, but this is why I quite often, this is maybe why I very loudly and quite often make the point that I think it's a bit of a people will sign up for all of them and then probably won't cancel them. I was saying the other day, I've been meaning to cancel Netflix for the longest time. I haven't watched anything on it in about six months. Still paying for it. That's because like it's me. Like a, yeah. I fell into the trap with uh, 10 All Access because I wanted to have a look at what it was like because these uh, broadcast video on demand platform that I have the most trouble with is 10 Play. It often freezes. We often lose where we're up to in the program. Ads will play four times in a row. 10 has made a lot of effort and has said on the record so many times that they're aware of these problems and they are improving them. But I wanted to see if those problems translated onto their streaming platform, 10 All Access, signed up for the free trial, have forgotten to cancel. And it's a bit like the need to consolidate superannuation (laughs) accounts, which I know you've done recently, Hannah, where I know I should do it. But I just... I always think of it at the most ridiculous time, like, oh, right now, but I can't because I'm on a podcast and by the time we leave, I'm going to have forgotten. <laughs> so they do, I think, get a bit of free money from people who just CBF'd cancelling. Definitely. Brittany, what do you pay for? I have Netflix, Stan, Amazon Prime. I pay a stupid amount for YouTube Premium every month. I've never Didn't met anyone just... who pays for YouTube yeah, Premium. Didn't they just remove Hello. everything from behind the paywall? I don't watch any YouTube original content. The reason why I pay for YouTube premium is because I don't want ads. Oh, my gosh. How much do you pay? <sighs> it's embarrassing. Um, it's fourteen ninety nine a month. That is a lot oh. to pay to avoid a Google Nest ad. It's a lot. Yeah. But also because I watch it on my phone, a, one thing that I didn't realize would be so helpful, which is, is that it has the background playing. Yeah. So you can get out of YouTube go into Instagram, go into Facebook, and it's still playing. It doesn't just cut the audio as soon as you get out of it. So, yeah, I pay for quite a few. I haven't signed up to Disney Plus yet, but we did have access to a few media screeners. So earlier in the week I did watch the first two episodes of High School Musical, the musical, I think that's what it's called. So not the movies? No, so they're doing a new series that's kind of – High School Musical crossed with Glee, where they have this high school, it's it's East High where High School Musical is set, and they're doing a stage production of High School Musical, the movie, because everyone there is obsessed with it. They have like an extra who, it, it, her claim to fame was that she got a tiny, tiny part in the movie and she's like directing it. And so it's very much kind of Glee, but with the High School Musical songs and similar kind of Troy and Gabriella love story drama playing out. And look, two episodes in, I'm into it. They also <laughs> have one that I was interested in from the launch that Hannah and I went to earlier in the week was uh, Encore with Kristen Bell. That looks so heartwarming where she goes and people who are kind of in their, um, you know, 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s kind of thing, they put on a musical like they were back in high school, like the the high school moment they never got to have kind of thing and they 
train and practice and present it and it looks so cute that actually sounds like my proper worst nightmare (laughs) you would hate it uh no watching it or being part of it both but definitely being part of it even before this podcast hannah was trying to get me to sing the original big brother theme and (laughs) i refused because singing is not one of my many limited talents but just to continue on this Disney theme, obviously the Disney programs and particularly the movies were previously on Stan and it was a huge uh, draw card for subscribers and I know it got Stan's paying subscriber numbers up. A lot of the time that I spent on Stan, if it wasn't watching their originals, including Bloom, which is fantastic, and the other guy, which has Matt O'Kine in it, I would just default to watching old Disney films Surely Stan is going to be hurting from this Disney Plus launch because it means they lost all that Disney content, Hannah. Yeah, and it was interesting the way it happened too. So they had obviously none of the streamers ever say when their content contracts will end. It's usually, oh, it's a multiple year contract or it's a short term contract or whatever. Very quietly across the weekend, Stan did pull all its Disney content before Disney Plus launched. Um, and to the point where there are a lot of comments online, a lot of discussion online, which are, you know, my kids got up in the morning to watch Frozen for the eight millionth time and it's not there anymore. So Mike Sneesby did an interview on the Screen Australia podcast, um, where he very repeatedly said, it's fine. Everything is fine. All that's going to happen is people are just going to sign up to yet another streaming service. It's not actually going to hurt. He reckons it will be like when Netflix launched here, where it didn't hurt Stan. It just kind of improved on people understanding what streaming is. But I think it's important to note as well, Disney is undercutting a lot of other people. It's $8.99 a month. Uh, Stan is 10. Netflix is 9.99. The only one cheaper is Amazon Prime, which is 6.99. And I would say has a fairly small catalog so if you're if I think probably for family people it's going to be hard to justify having a lot of different platforms that maybe don't appeal to the whole family I think Stan will have to increasingly rely on its Stan originals which does set it apart from Netflix it has a huge investment in local content compared to other streaming services Uh, and it does have award-winning content Bloom uh, was really successful. They've got the second season of The Other Guy with Matt O'Kine coming. They've had Romper Stomper. They've had all sorts of programs and they also sort of get exclusives with Australian comedians. I think they will have to lean into that and really get people on board, you know, on New Year's Day when they often dump a whole series for people to binge. And then they might try and strike deals with other international content giants, but I think that will become increasingly difficult. You know, a number of CBS programs used to be on other streaming services, but with 10 All Access launching here, 10 is owned by CBS, you're going to find each content house is going to want to have its own platform, which I think will see such a splitting of where the content is. Hopefully, though, at some point that rationalizes a bit in that we don't have the population of the US. We can't have that many services before we end up with like 10 people on each service. But think of it this way as well. So we're already seeing that Stan's already signed a deal with Paramount, which gets them a whole bunch of kids content. Um, but this, they are the most recent announcement they made of content was entirely originals. Um, so I th- think that speaks to what you're saying there. 
However, we already know HBO is on its way. We know more content providers are going to be on their way. So if you think of Stan and maybe even Foxtel, if HBO content's gone, Foxtel did a lot of its business this year off Game of Thrones. If it doesn't have those kind of flagship shows, what's it meant to do? What's it meant to do seems to be a question that you ask about Foxtel quite regularly. (laughs) So I guess we'll be continuing to talk about that. Next up, more brands release their Christmas ads. So this week we've had more brands jump on the Christmas bandwagon releasing their campaigns. IGA continued to use its spokesperson actor Shane Jacobson, which leans into the importance of locally sourced produce for Christmas. Team, do you care about locally sourced produce for Christmas or do you think people care more about prices? Ooh. I think people care more about prices, but perhaps that's the socioeconomic demographic that I'm in. I also admittedly don't have an IGA near me, so they would never really enter into the billing for me. But I can see, you know, both those campaigns, the second one focuses on Panettone and a big Italian family needing it for Christmas. So I can see how if you're a big family who relies on some very traditional things for your Christmas dinner, then I can see how that local push would work for you. I do have an IGA near me and I always feel kind of guilty for walking past it. It's, yeah, I think the demographic I'm in, definitely more price conscious, but also it feels like what we're seeing in the ads, which I could totally get behind getting produce and items that you couldn't find not just in other supermarkets but also in other IGAs other IGA ads have you know pushed the fact that depending where you live will depend on what you have in that IGA and what relationship that specific IGA owner has with farmers and the rest of it it feels like an IGA that kind of almost becomes semi-farmers market where you can get these cool interesting locally sourced and grown items would be one that I would probably go into more. Maybe it's because my IGA is in Parramatta that it doesn't really feel like that's what I've got. It feels like just the same as Coles and Woolworths, but with a slightly higher price tag. But um, I think that it's the right angle for them to be taking for sure, particularly in the context of further droughts, bushfires, people are more conscious than ever that we do need to spend more if we actually want to say, yeah, we care about farmers and we want to support them. So I think it's definitely the right angle. And I think that IGAs that do have those interesting one-off items would do probably better than ones that are in more city centre areas. Yeah, I mean, I was going to make that point as well about the bushfires, that it's certainly not capitalising on the trauma that's happening all over the country at the moment. But there is an implied association with, you know, the ad where the IGA owner is woken up by the call from his cherry provider and supporting the farmers and supporting the growers and it not being that sort of mass-produced, mass-production ripping off of farmers. They don't explicitly say that, but the idea is the IGA store owner knows the person who produces the cherries. They have a direct relationship. He can call him in the middle of the night, get up, get the cherries, and the implication being it's better quality, it's faster, it's better for everybody. So you're right that it is definitely the right angle to take, but I think at Christmas so many people do just 
care about prices. And I think particularly when you're buying in bulk, mm. like again, the farmer's market kind of idea, which I think is what they're trying to get to, that brings to mind a few things and picking out select quantities of things. Whereas at Christmas time, you're often providing for, you know, dozens of people, depending on how big your family is, that's when price becomes even more of a, of a driving factor, I think. Another ad that was released this week about Christmas was shopping centre chain Stocklands have told the story of the night before Christmas with an Aussie twist featuring Dunder the Reindeer. Hannah, I've not heard of Dunder the Reindeer. No, but if you read the story, the quotes that were given, um, apparently Dunder was a real reindeer back in the day, but has since become one of the other ones. But in the yeah, they then Sorry, don't real reindeer back in the day. Like in the, you know, if you... Well, oh, okay, so I think we need to break the news to Hannah about Santa. <laughs> Hannah, I meant... Speak it's Hannah. Hold yeah. on to the table. I've got some news I've got for some you. important news. I meant, you know, in the Blitz and... Dasher, I can't name anymore. Rudolph. Donna Blitzen. Donna is the one dancer. that Dunder once was. Oh. Yeah, allegedly. However, the campaign allegedly. doesn't say that because then the campaign says that Dunder is short for Down Under. So I don't know. All I, don't I know could what's think of here. is Dunder Mifflin, i.e. the workplace from the <laughs> office. Dunder is Dunder Mifflin. <laughs> but yes, Dunder the Reindeer is in the campaign. And I thought this was a really cute one. Last week we had Brittany and her bleeding heart loving on all the Christmas ads. This week it's going to be me for once because I actually thought this was really sweet. It's animated. It's the night before Christmas. It's a story we all know. It's the, you know, very traditional voiceover. Something goes horribly wrong. Dunder comes in and saves the day. They go to Stocklands, buy a bunch of presents. So I actually really liked this ad. The sort of problem in this ad or the complication is that Santa and his reindeer hit an ibis, which leads to their downfall. The only problem I had with it in that, you know, we're leaning into the down under thing, the Australian twist, the Australian tale, and the voiceover calls it an ibis, not a bin chicken. Also, the voiceover then later on says Christmas was cooked, which feels like a really Aussie slang term to throw in and then not use bin chicken. So mm. you're right. I did think that was a bit different. Also, Dunder at one point said, yeah, nah. I was about <laughs> to say that. I, I've only watched it once, but I was about to say, did I hear correctly yeah. that he said, yeah, nah. So if we're going to do that, yeah, nah, and this is cooked, Surely we could have lent into bin chicken. Everybody would have known what it was, especially with the cartoon depiction of the ibis on the screen. Maybe they thought this has happened to us before, I think, where we've used bin chicken in a story. And there have been some uh, ibis supporters in the comments who have called us out for our choice. Guardian bird of the year, ibis voters. (laughs) So maybe they thought bin chicken was a little too far. Yeah, look, I wouldn't want to upset any ibis fans out there, (laughs) that's for sure. So I'll... I, I can see why they went with Ibis. I just think it would have been a bit more fun if we'd lent into the bin chicken. So the other Christmas ad that we had this week was Officeworks claiming that nobody does Christmas like Officeworks. And to me, it looked a bit like they were sort of steering away from being an office supply chain store in that what they're telling consumers to come in and buy for Christmas was drones, uh, some weird robotic balls that I'd not even heard of before and I don't know what they are but I had to Google what were they called, like spheros or 
something? What are they? I'm not sure, but the last thing on the list was copy paper. So firstly, just a note to my family who aren't listening, but just in case they are, if they dare buy me copy paper for Christmas, there will be repercussions. So many Dunder Mifflin, the office references. (laughs) But also, yeah, do you know what though? I think maybe... They made a mistake with the angle they took. I think perhaps... Hannah, they made a mistake. They made a mistake. <laughs> I think perhaps, similar to what we were saying about Aussie Post last week, I think leaning into it's 8 o'clock on Christmas Eve, you're wrapping your presents and you haven't got any sticky tape, you've got to do a office works run... Pick up a drone on the way. Pick up a drone. Pick up a weird robotic ball. Drones felt weird because I feel like drones were the cool present from about like two, three years ago when they just came out. Like, do people are people still really into drones? What were they meant to do? Like an office chair? Well, here Spheros. They they did Spheros, and I've just looked it up while you've been talking about copy paper and drones. And it's a robot ball with several features that can be controlled through mobile apps. It feels a little bit like... Who doesn't want a robot ball on December 25, along with a stack of copy paper? It feels like mum had to go to Officeworks anyway. She suddenly realised she'd forgotten to get Brittany a present. She saw a... Wait, what? She (laughs) saw a Sphero or whatever we're calling it, and she was like, oh, God, buy that. I just... Is this where you're getting my secret Santa? (laughs) This is Brittany's secret Santa. It just seems like a weird choice in branding for Officeworks to be like, come here to get all your sick presents instead of being like, come here to get those emergency last minute things you need. And just to clarify, we haven't been given our secret Santa people yet. No, we we haven't. Don't worry. That just made me very nervous with my 15,000 unread emails. And one of them was telling me who to buy a gift for because I'm not sure. Maybe how much is Spiro's? Maybe I could buy (laughs) the the lucky umbrella person a a Spiro and they can control a robotic ball for Christmas. Or some copy paper. (laughs) The thing as well is that the the ad ended with and they'll always be parking Mm. with her standing in the car park and there was no cars around. And I'm like, so that means you're never busy (laughs) or like it just felt kind of like, I get what they're. I get what that is trying to do because you go to Office Works and there's the big kind yeah, of industrial area, car park, like huge shopping centres yeah. where you drive around nightmare. for 45 minutes and then you think someone's leaving and then they say, "Sorry, I'm not leaving." Yeah, total nightmare. But yeah, it just. I, I kind of agreed with Hannah in that. I mean, I was on the Ozpo should have lent into the sending message. So yeah, I'm on board with Hannah in that wrapping sticky tape cool bows to put on top of presents maybe you know a couple of last minute stocking fillers while you're a sphero perhaps going yeah. through the aisle sphero i just can't help but think of like churro or slovakia <laughs> and i'm like this isn't food get that out of your head but it's a, it's a strange claim to make that they'll always be parking because what if uh you know on the off chance the ad works gangbusters <laughs> and then everybody shows up at office works and there is no parking like it just feels like a claim that you can't substantiate and you can't guarantee so not one that i'd make there was a funny comment on the story that we wrote about the campaign launch which said something along the lines of like there's nobody does christmas like office works will 
yeah, nobody but office work can say that. Yeah. <laughs> so it feels like a bit of a redundant claim, which I thought was I, – I had a bit of a giggle to myself. It felt like that could have been a little bit stronger, like why? Yeah, everybody what, does Christmas a bit differently. Yeah. So what is your – What is office works doing that no one else is doing? Up next, Val Morgan gets into publishing with The Latch. When cinema and outdoor provider Val Morgan announced earlier in the year they were looking to enter the digital publishing space, which they did with the hire of pedestrians Brian Florido to head up the then unnamed platform, there are a lot of questions about what hole in the market they had possibly identified. This week at their upfront event, the company revealed The Latch, a lifestyle slash wellness slash entertainment publication aimed at affluent over 30s. Viv, you were at the upfront event. Let's start with just the title. What is The Latch and why is it called that? So as you mentioned, it's going to be targeting affluent over 30. So I think... and Is look, that you? I would love to know the answer to that question, Brittany. And I had this Surely discussion... I had this discussion with Hannah on Slack this morning where we were asking if I'm an, an affluent over 30 and Hannah said, if you have to ask the question. <laughs> Am I cool is kind of the, the... And then I thought, oh, maybe if I spent less on Uber Eats and alcohol, I could be affluent. But then I thought, oh, probably I probably feel like not. if you have to cut back to become affluent, you're not affluent. <laughs> Well, you know what, maybe I can be an aspirational affluent over 30. You know, I'm only 30 and 10 months. So I think, you know, I've got time. You've got time, you'll get there. You know, I've got a good, you know, nine years in me to become affluent and get on board with the latch. I think you've got the rest of your life, don't you? Over 30s. Oh, that's that's true. Um, (laughs) But I don't think they're targeting affluent 90-year-olds. Like I think it is more limited than that. They just haven't gone into details But to answer your original question, the latch is to do with unlocking. So it's to do with sort of the key to unlocking the secrets to wellness, to having a good lifestyle, to being affluent and all of that kind of thing. So you may not be able to own a home, but you can (laughs) access the latch. Yes, exactly. And they are very sure that there is a, a gap in the market. So I spoke to... Brian Florido and Amanda, and I don't know how to pronounce her last name, uh, but I think it's, I think it's Bardis, but I'm very conscious of accidentally saying it wrong and making it sound like badass, which, hey, I think is great, but maybe, <laughs> maybe she doesn't. Uh, so she's a, the sort of editor that's come across to, to head it up. And I said, you know, it's a pretty crowded, marketplace for digital platforms targeting millennials. Uh, You know, we've got pedestrian, we've got junkie. I know that punky is targeted slightly younger, but I know a lot of people in their early thirties who access it for its recaps and its videos and stuff. We've got news platforms. We've got, you know, Nova even has goat greatest of all time. There's just, there's so many. There's also all the men's publications. Mm. There's Damage. There's all of them. There's, there's Mamma Mia. There's the Upsider as well, which I think is part of the junkie group, which is kind of a similar, if you have money, here are experiences, places, things that mm. you like. But they, uh, Amanda and Brian were both insistent that there, there is a gap. Uh, they were saying that, you know, pedestrian, 
and the like, they were sort of implying those are a bit clickbaity and don't go much beyond the headline and are often sort of summarising or having a funny take on stories that were first reported elsewhere. They were very, very insistent that the latch would not be fluff pieces, it would not be clickbaity, it would not be sensational, it would be original content in all of those verticals that you mentioned and it would go deeper and be sort of, I guess, more credible than some of the other alternatives out there and they believe that the other publications are skewed slightly younger and just sort of don't go deep enough, don't go hard enough and don't provide enough information if you're an affluent over 30. (laughs) That's interesting because I would say that speaks to probably a lot of the platforms that exist in the US, like maybe, you know, the cut or any of those kind of even Refinery29, any of those kind of platforms. But I think maybe there's a reason that hasn't existed here before and I think it's perhaps because our audiences aren't quite big enough to support that kind of journalism. I think it's really hard for newsrooms, especially digital newsrooms, to support these kind of deep dives. I would also say they're about to face even more competition. Broadsheet have made it pretty clear that they're not staying in the food lane as have concrete playground don't stay in the food lane so i do struggle to see how there can be a gap in the market but they've got some pretty good names on board already so maybe they'll find a way and not to mention that they will and i'm not quite sure how this will play out yet but val morgan's outdoor assets and cinema assets can play into this to help promote it you know on O media digital billboards at the station you will often see as it goes through a rotation an ad for Junkie because O-Media owns Junkie. Val Morgan can definitely use that when they're launching the latch in January next year uh, and potentially cinema ads and all of the things that, you know, petro convenience when people are filling up their car. They do have a lot of assets that they can use to sort of get in front of people's eyeballs. I think monetizing it will be the challenge as it is with a lot of publishing you know new launches for publishing and I'm not quite clear on sort of their monetization strategy just yet I imagine there will be quite a bit of branded content and whatnot which will then again be able to be leveraged and used at the outdoor and their retail sort of assets and whatnot but their sort of aims for the first year I think are more just towards building the audience first rather than you know setting any kind of profit record it's worth um, noting, though, that at the Val Morgan upfronts, I didn't actually get to see their presentation about the latch. I did do an interview prior with uh, Brian and Amanda, but unfortunately, their upfront event uh, was quite near where I live. So it was at uh, the cinemas at Bondi Junction, walked up there for an 8.30am arrival, but we didn't go in. I think it was meant to start at 9.15, but we very much weren't seated by 930 I had to get back here for a podcast, interestingly enough, and there were quite a few tech issues and whatnot. There was this fantastic moment where a video was meant to play to pump up the crowd and sort of show off its, I guess, that it was in a cinema, so, you know, really leverage that sound and screen and everything just froze and it didn't work and it was that classic thing where it's like, oh, we're at a content provider's event and they can't get their content to work. But uh, the guy presenting was so good about it. He was so funny. He got up and said, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking a video was meant to play just then. (laughs) And, 
you're right, I'm thinking that too. And then I think he made another joke about how we were all wondering how they'd gotten Jason Statham or something to to present at the upfront. So he he used that awkward moment very well, but it just meant that I didn't get to see a lot of the actual presentation and I had to be that person that snuck out well before they'd revealed most of their plans. I did, though, get to see a lot of trailers for upcoming films in 2020 and you know that a hype reel can get me across the line <laughs> on bloody anything, even if there's tech issues and horrible sound and microphone. So saw ads for the live-action remake of Disney's Mulan, so that got me that got me excited. Uh, they showed us the premiere like for the next Bond, Daniel Craig's final Bond, and they had so many hype reels with so many good cuts. So I am glad I got to see that, but didn't actually get to see them trying to sell the latch to the market. So I guess I'll have to wait and see what people thought about that. Speaking of launching publications, though, it would appear that Rolling Stone Australia is back. So this week we've had the launch of a well, the announcement of the launch of a digital platform with Val Morgan's The Latch. And now, Hannah, we have Rolling Stone coming back, but in print form, I assume. Yeah, so it was an interesting one. The release that we received didn't make any reference to print. I combed it quite carefully and Control F P R I N T. Look, I combed it quite carefully. And there was no reference to it. So I did follow back and just say, is it just digital? But no, there is a print product coming. They have not yet decided on the frequency of that product, which is why nothing has been announced yet. But it will be here. Um, Yeah, so this is uh, Pensk Media Corporation, which is the parent company of Rolling Stone. They've signed a partnership with the Bragg Media. Um, The Bragg Media obviously does the Bragg um, and also does Tone Deaf industry observer and all those kind of entertainment titles so they're going it's in coming in 2020 there's going to be a bunch of different content uh that'll be launched they were pretty quick to say it won't all be local content there will be syndicated international content which i would imagine you probably have to do rolling stone australia is or was the last uh issue came out in January 2018. Gosh, I can't believe it's been that long. I know. And up until that point, up until it closed, it was the longest lasting international version of Rolling Stone. So Rolling Stone is obviously still going in the US, but they it was the um, only international that had been going for that long. It first launched in 1970 and it changed hands quite a few times, finally ending up at ACP before Paper Riot got hold of it. Paper Riot then unfortunately went into administration, which was when it closed However, I did a little bit of digging, and by that I mean searched up website, <laughs> and in January we were told Rolling Stone Australia was coming back, and it was looking for freelance writers in Australia to take part. There was nothing until this week when the Bragg released their thing saying that they had got hold of it. I don't know if those two are connected. I don't know if maybe Pensk were trying to launch it here on their own and then decided that was too hard and decided the brag should get involved. I'm not really sure what happened there. So do we know when it's going to hit newsstands or we still don't even have the answer to that? So the digital content is what's definitely launching in 2020. As for the print product, they have said there will be a later announcement about what that looks like and when it will come. Because Rolling Stone's best content was those really long-form features Mm. and interviews and – People, look, don't really like paying for print magazines 
anymore, but I also don't think we've fully adjusted to sitting in front of a screen and reading a really long feature, which is why platforms like Pedestrian and all that do do shorter articles because Mm. that's what people consume online quickly. So I think there's still a huge appetite for Rolling Stones really long features where a journalist spends days with a musician or a band and really gets to know them and has incredible anecdotes. I loved reading those, but I don't think I could do it in front of a screen. I think I do get distracted. You know, really? it's, it's a, I can't read long form things online. Like it just, really, you've got so many tabs open. There's oh. so many things happening. Whereas a Rolling Stone yeah. magazine that you buy at an airport and read on the plane, it's much more engaging and there's sort of less less distractions and I think there's a lot of evidence that it is hard to keep people engaged in those really 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 long things online yeah I um maybe it's because I read a lot on my kindle and that's kind of what I'm predominantly reading on rather than print books anymore but I love an online long read and actually this news this week I it was it had kind of come about either just before or just after I'd read um, Taffy Brodessa Ackner from the New York Times's profile with Tom Hanks, where she spends days with him and sort of gets underneath the, is Tom Hanks the nicest guy ever <laughs> question. And it, it made me really hope that that's what they do here with Rolling Stone Australia is those, that they have the resources and I guess the the capacity to do that because that's the stuff that I think we're missing in this market but as you say it's also the stuff that's most resource intensive that's Mm. hardest to get people to consistently support but yeah I think that's the stuff that that's the stuff that I desperately love and that's what I turn to US publications for. I think it's hard though because Vice definitely tried to do that when they launched here. Yeah. They tried to launch big and hard and basically copy the US Vice Rolling Stone in the US, it's not even just entertainment. Like they Mm. break massive news stories. Mm. They do really long form. Their content can be incredibly long. Mm. It's interesting. Um, So the brag is going to be in charge of an Australian vertical on rollingstone.com, but they're also going to represent Rolling Stone Australia across international sites and also across their own social media. I do wonder, yeah, I think I wonder how much of that long form content is going to just end up being syndicated content and how much – because they've so far we've got an editor and a managing editor. We haven't got any journos or anything, but I know across the brag they use a lot of freelancers. So I do wonder whether that's just going to be then then covering news. But of course, it's you know hard to predict anything without seeing a launch platform. It feels like a big step up for the brag as well compared to sort of their scale and the size of their operation here to have control over a title that's got the reputation that Rolling Stone does. That's as big as Rolling Stone is the brag and kind of associated titles feel a bit gritty, a bit street press still. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, not to say that Rolling Stone is, you know, super polished. There's still that grit and rock and roll to it, obviously, but it'll be interesting to see whether or not they match what the US has done in terms of just, you know, polish and tone and style. Next up, Hannah chats with MNC Saatchi CEO, James Leggett. is Hannah Blackiston and I am here with MNC Saatchi's James Leggett. Thank you for joining us, James. Hi guys, thank you for having me. 
So let's start off with back in 2017, which is almost three years ago now, which seems a little wild, but there you go. MNC Saatchi purchased media agency Bohemia. How has that acquisition gone? Oh, amazing. I mean, three years ago, we we went into that acquisition, as you always do, with sort of high expectations. You know, there's a group of people that had done really well on their own independently. They had a brilliant culture and great people. So we thought, you know, it had all the makings of being a really successful partnership because very similar business to ours. And three years later, that business is three times the size of what it was. They've won a bunch of really incredible new business and they've produced some really great work. And what we found is actually within some of the um, other creative divisions of our business, this really infused media thinking, channel strategy thinking and sort of data and technology thinking has come through. So yeah, couldn't, couldn't be more proud of those guys and girls. They've been brilliant. It's interesting because talking about that, about how it's kind of impacted your business, are you surprised that more creative agencies aren't kind of going down this integrated route or that they're not looking to do the same sort of acquisitions? Surprised, yes, absolutely. Um, but there is there are complexities with some of the larger group holding companies and the way that their relationships work, their P&Ls, how revenue flows locally and globally. So I'm not surprised that they haven't been able to mobilize it. Um, but I imagine in time we will see through the consolidation of the group holding companies, we will see media companies or media orientated businesses being brought closer to creative businesses. At the moment, I think that consolidation has been largely businesses that are similar to one another being brought together. But I imagine in time we will see more strategic alliances and consolidations being made. And what was it that initially drew you to Bohemia? The people and the culture. Mm. I mean, there were a number of media businesses and a number of independent businesses that we reviewed at the time. Uh, but Brett and his team, we felt were a stand apart and um, their culture as a business and the consistency of that culture over time, how it had grown and developed was really attractive to us because, as I say, the things that they valued and the behaviours that they celebrated are, are those were very, very similar to, to the words and the behaviours and the values that we would talk about with MNC Saatchi. So it just felt right. Yeah. And you touched on it there a little bit um, about further consolidation. How do you think the agency space is going to look? We're obviously coming to the end of a decade now. So do you think in the next decade we're going to start seeing a lot more of that happening across the board? Look, the, the notion of consolidation or not, I can't really talk to that. My instinct is yes, because I think the holding companies have a debt-to-equity ratio issue um, and uh, and it's not a sustainable structure that they have now. So I think they're consolidating for those reasons. Uh, I don't necessarily think that that consolidation is strategic at this point in time. I do think that there is a strategic opportunity, though, in the future to change the way that we do business. I believe that Broadly speaking, the agency model is broken. You know, the only way we scale is through um, more people working longer hours. And I think that's fundamentally flawed because there's a diseconomy of scale. The bigger you get, uh, the lower your margins because you, our business is largely a people business. And the more people you have, the more complexity you have in, in sort of managing, managing that business. So I think finding uh, new ways of doing the things that we do, um, providing greater degrees of flexibility in the way that people work, um, and finding different ways of charging clients, um, valuing what we do differently uh, and charging differently for that um, will have quite a profound impact, I reckon probably the biggest impact on the industry. So if you say the model is currently broken, how do you think it got to that place? Because obviously something has to happen a lot of people have to say something's okay for it to get to a place where it's broken. 
I think you, you need to look at history mm. and you need to look at how agencies have made money in the past. And largely we were media orientated businesses that were taking a percentage of client spend, right? So whatever they spent with traditional media owners, we would take 8% or 10% or whatever that was. Over time, our model evolved and we started to say to clients, well, look, we, we will provide, we'll help you provide the work that goes in those media spaces. So we'll create the ads that fill those spaces. And then over time, we started to say it wasn't just about the creative that filled the ads. It was actually making sure that those ads were strategically right for your business to drive growth. So strategy and creative became increasingly important parts of what we did, but they weren't being paid for. Early 90s, you saw a split um, and largely driven by Saatchi and Saatchi um, and uh, Zenith at the time, where they said, we're going to split media agencies from creative agencies. The reason for doing that was inherently selfish, right? That was uh, agency owners believing that, well, if we split the media and creative, the media would be paid for in the way that it's always been paid for. And then we'd have something new that we would be able to charge clients for, which was strategy and creative. And I think the model has sort of evolved from there. And at that point in time, how they sold it was time and materials. So they said, well, we'll make an ad. It will take us 10 hours to make the ad. This is how much we charge per hour. So you charge, you, you pass 10 times that. And the, the business has continued to, to, to change over time. Um, but that model hasn't. And mm. now, you know, if you look at what our businesses do, we are inherently creative businesses. Creativity is our stock in trade. Um, and we do more than make ads. We develop products, services, utilities, and experiences. You know, we are largely problem solvers, and creativity is a tool that we bring to solve those problems. Um, and that's when I say that I think the model is broken. I think the old model isn't fit for the new world. So we need a new model to reflect the new things that we do. Mm. So let's talk more about the creative space. How do you think the local creative market has performed over the last year? Well, I think there's some. Uh, I think advertising has its challenges, um, but one thing that we are very good at is producing amazing work. I think Australia punches well above its weight creatively, and I'm not just talking about awards that we win, but I think it's the strategic approach we adopt to um, producing creative work, the the creative ideas themselves, the execution, the craft of production. I think if you look at the work, a body of work that comes out of Australia, I think it's work that we should all be fiercely proud of. And I think the results follow. You know, if you look at results around the world, Australian punches, up, as I say, above its weight. So I think we're producing some good work. So I'm going to put you on the spot. What's been some of your favourite work from this year? Uh, I, I would rattle off uh, a lot of the work <laughs> that we've produced. Uh, MNC Saji's had a great year this year, and I think we've produced um, our body of work personally. Our body of work this year has been really strong. Work that I would call out, I think the tab work, the new tab brand platform work, long maybe play. Um, some of the content that's come off the back of that, the longer form content, the kind of short, you know, six second bumpers and things like that, I think is, is good work. I think some of the work that we produced out of Woolies is very strong. Some of the work for Big W and BWS. There's a real, there's a real variety of work in there that I think is, that I think is great. Um, it's really interesting, you know, we sort of, we're coming up to Christmas time and, you know, you sort of see a lot of work break around Christmas. I don't know if you guys have across some of the new campaigns that have been happening here and globally, but it's quite interesting to compare and contrast, you know, Woolies, Coles and Aldi against, you know, m and The John Lewis ad has recently dropped. It has. Um, which I think is interesting as well. I think what's been particularly interesting is kind of 
the way some of the stuff has generated conversation, which we're going to get into now with the philosophy campaign, which obviously what we've seen, this is for um, MNC Saatchi for Tourism Australia. This was obviously for, uh, you know, the new brand, brand platform for Tourism Australia following, following on from Dundee, which was incredibly successful. I was shocked by how that was received, I think. I think it was difficult because obviously what it launched with was very much the industry-focused content. And I think it just kind of was received in a way I couldn't really have uh, predicted. And I really quite liked it. Maybe not the tagline, but I did really quite like the creative. And I really liked, you know, I like the way Australia markets itself. I like that we always put forward this really sunny and exciting disposition. Were you expecting how that was going to be received? Were you shocked at all by the feedback to that? Yes, yes and no. I think um, a couple of points of context, mm. I guess, before we get into some of the commentary of it, and then we can talk to the work. I think the first thing is, you know, we're talking about Australia, yeah. all right? And we are, on the most part, the people that are making the commentary uh, are people that are in Australia. And we're here because we love it, right? And it's a product that we all know and are, are like, deeply invested in personally. So we all have a really strong opinion on. So you're talking about a product uh, that everyone has a really strong opinion on. Right? You're also talking in a context of anonymous commentary um, and in a marketplace which is highly competitive and uh, and in a culture where they, you know, they talk to the sort of the t- tall poppy syndrome, which is a thing. So um, you're talking about a product that everyone has a firm opinion on um, and you're talking about an environment, an anonymous environment, where it's easy to, to make comment and judgment, but not stand behind that and own your truth. So, you know, work does get talked about in those environments probably more than it would get talked about ordinarily. Mm. The other point of context was that the brand hasn't launched yet. The work hasn't launched yet. So people are making comments on work that they haven't seen. Um, They're making comments on a line out of context, Mm. which is really disappointing because I think the work is good uh, and it's work that we are fiercely proud of as a business. Um, and I would ask that people listening would judge the work when they see it because um, I would hope that there would be a degree of understanding and empathy in the industry. When you launch a new platform, it needs to be explained. It needs Invariably, there is content that is produced which gives a line meaning because lines mean nothing without meaning. No line means anything until it's got something wrapped around it. The reality is that work was a internal trade release so it was a a precursor sharing to the trade where tourism australia was going it was never intended as a consumer release uh, of the work or the line or anything like that that will come later that comes in the new year so and for one reason or another um, it was shared and shared quite broadly people rightly so made judgment based on what they had seen not quite appreciating and understanding the context and as a result, jump to conclusions about what it is and what it isn't. So that is how we find ourselves in the position that we have with the commentary that we have. I think when people see the work uh, in its entirety, then they're, you know, it, it's, it's their prerogative to, to like or not like, to believe or not believe. Um, but it's only at that point that we'll know. That makes sense. It does. It's interesting as well, I think. Um, it draws to mind South Australia Tourism's campaign from earlier this year, the Old Mate campaign, which also 
drew a lot of response for what was a kind of a campaign that unveiled a bit slowly. You know, they had that initial first spot with old mate being sad he didn't go to Adelaide and then they expanded on that with him bringing his mates back. Do you think people, I don't know whether this is necessarily true or whether it's just a coincidence this year, but do you think people are quite quick to judge tourism advertising or advertising that speaks to tourism? I think people have a a, a fiercely loyal connection Mm. to the place that they come from. And because of it, they have deep expertise in it, as we all do about Australia and whatever else. So they feel um, justified in sharing an opinion probably earlier than something else. You know, if if it's a product you don't have a lot of experience in, uh, you don't feel particularly bonded or connected to, um, you're not going to jump to an immediate conclusion about whether something is right or not. You Mm -hmm. probably give it some time to reflect and think about it, whereas something that you inherently know, then you're more naturally to make an instinctive uh, judgment on, I guess. So let's get back to Christmas. One of your other big clients is Woolies and they recently launched their Christmas campaign. Do you want to kind of talk us through a little bit? Um, Because one of the things we noticed, particularly with that campaign, is I think it had a very Woolworths-y feel. Can you talk us through how you kind of get to creating those sorts of campaigns? Woolworths is a business that uh, is doing incredibly well incredibly well um you know in september time they had their best ever share price you know the, the highest ever market capitalization in the history now that's not down to the advertising that's down to a management team that's made some very sound strategic decisions over the last four or five years and sort of executed them um and one critical component of that has been customer centered so reorientating their focus and this is not my point of view this is in the public domain but reorientating their business away from being um, singularly shareholder-led to being customer-led and as a result, delivering value to the shareholder. Um, and a, a big part of that is demonstrating the role that Woolworths plays in, in people's lives and in doing so, showcasing the product, the product's role in people's lives. So you, you sort of start your brief there. Um, and then there are some visual cues. There are mnemonics. There are there are things which um, start to become inherently Woolworthsy that we we try to own. Um, there's a brand platform, that's why I pick Woolies. So I think when you look at that ad, you see joy, um, you see a degree of sort of hyper-saturation of things. Everything looks wonderful, everything feels tactile, um, and it's just got a bit of a sprinkling of magic. It's, a, it's an easy commercial to watch, and it feels good having watched it, and it makes you want to eat the, the food and the product. You know? So it feels like it's going to do well this year. I think when you compare and contrast it, and it's not my business particularly to talk about um, the other, the other, some of the other businesses in, in Coles and Aldi, but I think they've taken quite a different approach. Um, for what it's worth, I really like the Aldi work personally. Um, I think you know the guys at uh, BMF do a good job, and I think the, you know, there's a degree of sort of humour and wit. And while the commercials are all different to one another, they have a consistency to them, and that sort of royal Tenenbaumsy feel. Um, yeah, I, I like that work. I know it's polarised some people, but um, for what it's worth, uh, I think it's I think it's good work. We're about to head into a new decade, obviously quickly about to close up 2019. What are you expecting for the advertising and creative market over, let's say, the next year, but then more broadly over the next decade? Look, I think uh, th- there's two ways into answering that. If I an anecdotal view on next year, I think it's going to be challenging Mm. you know if you look at the metaphoric trade wins uh, over the last sort of six nine months 
um, you know, media owners are down across the board. Uh, you know, the the reserve has come and cut interest rates, and then you read the Fin and you sort of see articles that talk about the lack of impact of that cut. You know, the cut costs money, but hasn't really delivered much impact into the economy. Some people talking us into a recession. Um, in recessions, consumer confidence is down. Their spend on everyday products is down. If their spend on everyday products is down, our clients' revenues are down. If their revenues are down, they have to cut costs to deliver profit. If they cut costs, marketing is an obvious area where they remove that cost. So you'll see marketing spends down and agency fees down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a very obvious trend into next year being challenging. Right? That's not entirely new news. On the flip side of that is um, I believe that every business in every market everywhere is being disrupted. All right? uh, our business, your business, everyone's businesses. And CEOs have a duality of tasks. They have, uh, they have to run their businesses, the day-to-day of their business, and they need to drive transformation in their business, positioning it for the future. And I think that's where we come in. I think creativity has never been more important. You know, we touched on earlier about um, creativity as our stock in trade and using that creativity to solve problems, developing products, services, utilities, experiences, or whatever it is. I believe that CEOs in Australia need us more now than they've ever needed us. And I believe this has never been a more exciting time to be working in, in our industry. So I feel, I feel really pumped about what we do. Um, and I feel really confident about the role we will play in businesses in the future. But I think next year will probably be a little harder than it needs to be. But that is what it is. It's a short-term thing. Long-term, we've got everything to play for. Do you think, I've kind of heard both sides of this argument, but do you think tough times lends itself better to more exciting creative? Or do you think brands and agencies kind of feel the need to play it safe when times are a bit tough? I guess the reason you've heard both sides of it is because both are true and they're reflective of different businesses at different stages of their life cycle. There will 100% be businesses out there that will be scrapping for their life, that will be you know, throwing metaphoric Hail Mary throws, right? They will need to do something different um, and invariably will lean on creativity as a means of doing that. And as a result, you'll see agencies having uh, space to, to really have a crack and in doing so will produce amazing work. On the flip side of that, you'll see other brands who are trying to manage controlled decline um, or stem uh, the, the flow of, of business, out of their business. And as a result, they will do what they know works um, with a sort of a 5% incremental change. And you'll see work which is maybe not strategically challenging or creatively challenging, but highly produced and really well uh, delivered. So I think we'll, 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 we'll see a, a work in both of those camps next year. And what about specifically for MNC? What have you guys got coming up next year? Wow. So this 2019 has been a cracker year for us, our best ever year. Um, we've, we've won good new business, hired great people, and, and produced a body of work, as I said earlier, that, it, that we're fiercely proud of. Um, and that momentum will naturally carry into next year. Uh, so I'm hoping for, for more of the same. Um, I hope we go into the year with a couple of good new business wins because um, new business brings new people um, in terms of clients into the building, obviously, but then also allows us to hire new people. And that means we can broaden our resource base. We can hire deeper, but we can also hire broader. So I'm quite excited about that. 
And I'm also excited about just, you know, the excitement that comes with a business having momentum and what that means for, for teams and how they behave and the types of work that they write and um, the type of work, the confidence that we have to present that work to clients and all the rest of it. So I'm feeling quite pumped about next year. Touch wood because, you know, it is tough out there. Um, and, you know, there's an old adage that sort of you're only two calls away from disaster. So, look, we're not counting our chickens, certainly. Um, we certainly don't have a degree of hubris about it, but we are allowing ourselves a little degree of excitement because we work in advertising because it's fun, you know. And uh, it would be a shame to go into Christmas time you know, feeling like you know, next year's a, a noose around our neck. You know, we're going into a very different attitude. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me, James. Amazing. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. And that's all for this week. But before we go, the program for Mumbrella 360 2020 has just launched and it's set to be bigger and better than ever before. We've already got Lone Thompson, Chief Marketing Officer of The Meatless Farm, and Jason Kaner, President of Global Health and Wellness at Grey, whose clients include Sensodyne, Botox and Playtex. Plus, we're still open for session submissions. If you've got an idea for a session that would work at Mumbrella 360 next year, held from the 2nd till the 4th of June in Sydney, head to mumbrella.com.au slash mumbrella360 and click on the Submit Your Proposal portal or even buy a super early bird ticket now and save $1,000. That's it for this week, though. Thank you, team. Thanks. Thanks.